The stage is dark, but the conversation is just beginning. Welcome back to the Utah Symphony Utah Opera Ghostlight Podcast, a behind-the-curtain look into the world of classical music and the artists who make it. I'm Jeff Counts. And I'm Carol Anderson. Our guest today is soprano Wendy Bryn Harmer. At the time of recording this podcast, Wendy Bryn is here to rehearse and perform the role of Elle in Poulenc's monodrama, The Human Voice, or La Voix Humaine. Wendy was born in California, grew up in Bountiful, so she's a hometown girl. She went to Bountiful High School. After high school, she went to Boston Conservatory, and then uh, while trying to figure out her next steps in graduate school, she was scouted and recruited by the Metropolitan Opera's Lindemann Young Artist Program. Uh, Wendy currently lives in New York State with her husband, Micah, and her adorable children, Samuel and Cordelia. And we're just so glad to have Wendy here in Utah. Welcome. Thank you. Very glad to be here. First of all, it's really welcome home, Wendy Bryn, because as uh, Carol mentioned, you lived in Bountiful, which is a town just to the north of where we're recording today here in Salt Lake City. You were there for a number of years and mm -hmm. I think graduated from Bountiful High School, right? I did. Go and Braves. We, we love stories of Utah people going out into the world and making good. So you left Utah at a certain point to, to make your way on the major stages of the opera world. And we're all super proud of that for you. Uh, tell us how that has worked out for you. Give us a thumbnail sketch of your career since you left for people who are foolish enough not to know this already. <laughs> it's been a pretty, pretty good ride. Um, I did. I left Utah right after high school. I went to the Boston Conservatory of Music. And from there, things just, I couldn't replicate it if I tried. And one of the things I often tell young singers is do not base the path you're going to take on anyone else's because I couldn't have taken that path if I'd known what some of the decisions I would make, where I, where they would have led me. Partway through my time at the Boston Conservatory, I ended up at the Music Academy of the West in Santa Barbara, California for a couple of summers, where Marilyn Horn became really my mentor and kind of my fairy godmother. I still am in touch with Marilyn, where she's a dear friend. And I was a Rossini mezzo. So I was kind of a mini Marilyn. I was, you know, chubby cheeks, Rossini mezzo. And it, she took me under her wing and really guided me. Um, not long after she and I met, she started saying, you know, Wendy Brand, I think you're a soprano, but you're probably a Wagnerian or a dramatic soprano. And at the ripe age of 22, that's not really, there's not a lot of rep for you. So let's continue with this Rossini charade. So we did. And she kind of guided the rest of my career. Um, I ended up at the Lindemann Young Artist Development Program at the Metropolitan Opera I was auditioning for grad schools and Lenore Rosenberg, who at the time ran that program, heard one of my auditions and asked if I'd be interested in auditioning for their program. And I was. So I did this three-year program at the Met that was very similar to a grad program, but instead it was on stage at the Met instead of on stage at a university. And from there, it just kind of... I kind of just never left New York and I never left the Met. I've been really fortunate to spend a lot of time at the Met. I live there. I live at home. I don't live at the Met. I live at home in New York. Um, but my relationship with the Met has allowed me to spend more time at home than many opera singers do. Most singers are on the road for six or eight months out of the year at the very least. I'm not on the road for six or eight months out of the year usually, which is a huge blessing. Um, so that's kind of how it happened. It just all sort of 
fell into place. Uh, and, and I've been really thankful for my time at the Met, thankful for the time I've spent at San Francisco Opera, in all the other opera houses I've worked in. It's just, it's, it's been a really exciting decade or so. As you've been developing this amazing career, and I've enjoyed being able to watch it when I can via the Met Live in HD, you've also had some uh, personal challenges along the way. Mm -hmm. We're in a global crisis today, and we're trying to figure it out step-by-step, step, all of us together, but you've had a few crisis moments along the way. How yeah. have the arts kept you sane and also hopeful in the midst of these crises? You know, that's a really good question. I've, the pandemic, I am perhaps uniquely qualified to speak about isolation in that um, several years ago, I was diagnosed with ovarian cancer and I was diagnosed when I was pregnant. And they found the cancer, thankfully, because I was pregnant. It, they would not have found it in time. It was a very aggressive form. When they did remove the tumor, they, I immediately went into nine rounds of chemo um, and another couple of surgeries. And thankfully, I've, we're nearing the five-year mark of that. However, during that time, my management and I decided it wasn't something we were going to talk about. Um, so they told several people I was taking an extended maternity leave which I did. And then the chemo really kicked in and I needed to isolate in a lot of ways. I was, I look back at that time in the midst of it, it was obviously extraordinarily difficult, anyone who's been through that. However, I look back at that time as a bit of a snapshot in my life where things just paused and I got to just relish the moment I was in. I had an infant I wasn't expecting to have. Our first son is adopted. We were in the process of expecting our second, or rather adopting a second child when we found out I was expecting. So it was sort of 14 miracles had to happen in sequential order for me to survive cancer, and they did. And so I was in the moment while I was thankful that, you know, we caught it early enough to treat. I also had these young kids. I was trying to do my best. My mother, unfortunately, passed away about five days. Her funeral was five days before Cordelia was born. And then I started chemo five weeks later. Uh, and my mother died of the same cancer that I had just been diagnosed with. So my dad moved in with us. He moved across the country. He was in Bountiful. He moved to New York and he held my baby for nine months so I could go through chemo. And I look back at that time as this extraordinary moment in my life where I didn't have to do anything except love the people I was with. And following my very final round of chemo, 36 hours later, I was on a plane on my way to sing Ariadne. And I think back at that time as being like, Strauss saved my life in a way, because I look, I have all these pictures of me in chemo, bald and under a blanket. And I have an Ariadne score or a Dutchman score on my lap in almost every single photo. Cause I couldn't take my kids to chemo and I had to do something to keep me entertained. So I have these scores and I look back at this time, like I was a pool ball, like I was bald as could be. And the wig and makeup team were unbelievable. And my family was there. And, you know, I had an aunt who flew in from California to support kind of my first trip back. And then right after that, I went to Seattle to sing Dutchman and my hair had grown in just enough that I decided to stop wearing my wig because they're super, they're hot and itchy. 
And everyone just thought I was a super badass Senta, <laughs> like <laughs> really hardcore Senta um, that was really into this character of Senta. And it was, I just felt so buoyed and so lifted up, not just by the music, but by the community of musicians. Um, everyone was on my side. And it wasn't just because I had this compelling cancer story. It's that everybody wants the production to be successful, right? It's nobody wants you to fail. And I think one of the things that that experience taught me was like, they're all on my side. Um, when I'm in a rehearsal studio, one of the things chemo did to me as it does to many, many, many people is it fries your short-term memory. It's very hard to get it back. To this day, all the roles I learned pre-chemo, are they live differently in my body and my brain than everything I learned after. I, I'm also a flautist, just for fun. I played pretty seriously for about a decade before I became a singer. And when I say a decade, it was junior high and high school. But that was my planned pursuit. I can still play my flute. I still get it out a lot. I use it to learn rap. I can still play things I learned before chemo. I have not learned anything on the flute post-chemo that sticks. So it's it's just been a very interesting... I've had to reapproach music, and I've had to reapproach learning music with a different part of my brain. And it's just been... It's been a really interesting five years watching how you get that memory back and how people are so supportive of it. And it's just, it's, I'm thankful that this is the community. This is the community that I went through chemo with because it's not, it's a, it's a loving community and it's a supportive community. And it's a community where people, the arts make you more empathetic and you're better, you're more well-rounded. And I just feel like if I had been in a different profession, I think cancer would have, cost me more than it did. Well, look, cheers to your doctors. Cheers to your dad. Cheers Thanks. to Strauss. Cheers to you and your force of will. I mean, the world needs more badass Sentas. So. <laughs> more bald Sentas. Yeah, I'm just so glad you're here with us today. And, you know, our, our audience was super excited to welcome you to the Capitol Theater to sing Wagner here. I mean, that was the whole point of your return to Utah. Yeah. And I should say, full disclosure, Wendy Brin auditioned for the resident artist program here twice, and we didn't take her, Carol. So wow. she had to console herself <laughs> at the Met. Uh, I had to spend a decade kind of honing my craft well, before we, I could come home. We finally learned our lesson, and it's great to have you home. But obviously, you know, Wagner's not going to happen. Things have changed. So what changed for you in this homecoming when the repertoire took such a significant left turn? It was, it was, it's a huge shift. We were kind of joking the other day, Carol and I were working and Kelly from props came in to deliver some things. And it suddenly dawned on me. I've been thinking about the pandemics, you know, how, how artists are reacting to it. Of course, all performers, all the coaches, all the managers, you know, my management, if I don't get paid, my manager doesn't get paid. And then only recently have I started realizing, you know, embarrassingly so that it didn't dawn on me sooner that the entire company is impacted. You know, Kelly has to completely redo his job because not a lot of props from Die Fliegende Hallende transfer to La Voix Humaine. Like, uh, these are not the same. <laughs> We're not living in the same time period. Uh, there's not a lot of sails and spinning wheels and ships in La Voix Humaine. Um, so the human voice was a very different... Everybody had to take a very sharp 90-degree turn. And for me, it actually, it did take a little bit of convincing um, to do it because 
I had I had learned several new roles this year that I had coached, prepped, they were ready to go, and then the company canceled. I was meant to be in Japan earlier this year. Twelve hours before my flight, I got word that they were canceling. I was meant to be in Hong Kong this year. That got canceled. Everything at the Met got canceled. So for me, learning when my management brought it up, on the one hand, I was like, bully for Utah, good for them for trying. Hulank isn't necessarily my home slice, like Strauss and Wagner and Beethoven and Verdi. Like, those are, those are my guys. And Hulank maybe isn't my guy. I don't know. I haven't spent a whole lot of time in his world. So I wasn't sure about that. But more than anything, I just wasn't sure about learning and memorizing another new role. Because <laughs> it was just feeling, I was feeling so excited about coming back. Ada Singh Senta, which yeah. is just, I get her. I love her. But also, I can roll out of bed and sing Senta. And it's in the sense that I've lived with her for so long that the text is just on the tip of my tongue all the time. And so learning a new role for me, it took a little bit of convincing. I'm glad I did it. I'm extraordinarily proud to be part of something where, you know, artistic companies, your schedules are planned years in advance, years. This was planned weeks in advance. Something that normally takes years took six or eight weeks at best before between conception to opening night. That's impressive. That is really impressive. Um, and also to prove, I think that for so many people in the artistic community, we feel like we need to live the life we lived before and do the way we performed before and perform everything the same way we performed before with a full audience or nothing at all. And it all has to be online. And I think that there is a medium. There is somewhere in the middle. And we just have to be creative and innovative enough to figure it out and to find it. I'm thankful for the technology that allows Zoom operas to happen. I hope we don't get used to it. It is not the same yeah. as being in the room. It's just not. You don't get, it's not just the communication that's happening between the performers and the audience, between the symphony and the audience, and between the audience and the performer. It's about the communication that happens between audience member and audience member. I think being in a room when something magical is happening on stage or something tragic is happening on stage or something beautiful is happening on stage Everyone in the audience has a different experience and they leave that theater thinking something different. And it's not the same as binge watching something on Netflix. It's just not. The line my managers used to convince me to pull it together in the midst of homeschooling your children, really quickly learn a new role, was I think your soul needs it. And they were totally right. Like I needed to perform live for myself. So I selfishly agreed to do it. <laughs> I know you had to consider a lot of things besides just time and music and mm -hmm. all of that. You had to also consider safety. Of course. How have you felt about rehearsing in this very uh, strange environment? We've had to recreate the way our rehearsal room looks. Right. We've had to recreate how the rehearsal room looks and recreate the timing of rehearsals. Personally, I feel very safe. It feels, I think, I feel like the riskiest behavior I did was get on the airplane to come here. So I used, you know, an extra mask with a filter and then a second mask over it on the airplane. The airplane was the thing I was the most, you know, concerned about because I knew Utah Opera was taking such careful measures. Um, everyone in the room is masked. It's really hard to rehearse in a mask because it does kind of mess with your periphery a little bit. It messes, you know, mine, if I'm singing long enough, 
it inevitably slips down. Mm -hmm. um, there are Singer masks that are open at the bottom, but the whole point of them is that they cover more of your face. And so it actually made it harder to see, easier to sing, but harder to see. So this has been, I feel like this has been a really interesting experience technically to figure out how to literally sing into a pillow. You are, you know, you're singing into a cotton ball and not push. That's been a, it's been a very interesting technical exercise for me and understanding it's not appropriate for me to take off my mask in a room with a pianist and a conductor and a director and some assistant stage managers and, and so on and so forth. I'm, I'm the one singing and it would be helpful for me to take off my mask and sing normally. But everyone else in the room is taking precautions for me. So I need to bully up and take precautions for them. You know, Carol at the piano behind plexiglass is probably not getting, she's not singing at me. So she's not pushing her air toward me, yet she's still in a mask because she's respectful of, I have a different life experience than she does. Um, and so it's, it's important for me to be able to rehearse in a mask too. I am really looking forward to getting on stage and taking the mask off. Um, you know, everyone is far, 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 far away from me at that point. So it's a little bit safer, but I feel like Utah Opera has done just incredible things with putting plexiglass between the director and me, but putting plexiglass between the conductor and the orchestra or the conductor and me between the pianist in rehearsals. Um, one thing that I think Utah Opera has done really well is the wiping in and out. When you come to a rehearsal, you wipe the piano keys with disinfectant. You wipe the doorknobs of the room you're using. Um, this, I think that these are common sense practices that will probably be kept in the long run. It's going to last. It's going to sure. last. And it's very interesting. I have, a, I have a sister in the medical field who was saying, you know, she's at a, she's at a surgical center where she often has to tell children or the families of children, you know, the child comes in with a cold. I can't do this surgery on your child because they have a cold. So she's now... <laughs> experiencing this whole different, ex it's, it's totally different. Every kid who comes into the surgical center is healthy. And she's wondering like, wait a minute, I have never seen so many healthy children. And it's because we are all so much more aware of washing our hands and wearing masks. And as singers or as performing artists, we've always been hyper aware of washing our hands and being nervous. Every time I have flown transatlantically, I've worn a mask every time because I don't have time to get sick. When I land in Europe or wherever, I have six hours before rehearsal. If I caught a cold on the airplane, I slow everybody down. Everybody's job is compromised if I can't do my own. And so I feel like the rest of the world <laughs> suddenly feels like what it's like to be a singer, which is any tickle in your throat, you panic because you don't have time to get sick. Or the constant washing of hands or the rinsing of your sinuses with saline. Mm. Like... Singers have been on this for years. Huh. That's really interesting to think about the rest of us finally getting to feel, at least in part, what you go through to do the your job. The panic you feel if yeah. you have post-nasal drip. That's really interesting. <laughs> well, I, I want to circle back to what you were talking about before in terms of learning roles, because mm -hmm. as Carol mentioned, Human Voice is this monodrama that's based on this one woman play by Jean Cocteau. And I'm sure it couldn't be more different than a Senta and a Dutchman. And the fact that you, that you know Senta so well isn't the only thing to consider. I'm sure no, it's yeah. how unique this role is. So what's your process for learning something new, especially something so far from your usual stuff? 
The process for me is always beginning with language. Um, in this case, we weren't doing the French, original French, and Poulenc meant it to be done in the vernacular. That's uh -huh. uh, something that's been written about quite a bit, is that Poulenc was 100% on board with people using translations. Um, so once I realized it was not being done in French, frankly, I breathed a sigh of relief <laughs> because that meant the limited time to learn it would be easier. But it also meant it became very difficult for me. I couldn't listen to a recording of it because this particular translation didn't really exist in a recording. Um, there is a recording with this translation, but it's with a singer for whom a lot of changes were made because she wasn't a soprano. And so I didn't want to listen to it because I didn't want to get it in my ear her way. Um, so that was really tricky, but typically I, I would start with the language. I work very closely with coaches because I'm a mom. I can't get work done at home. I don't study at home. I don't prepare roles at home. So I will spend, I'll schedule, you know, daily 90 or two hour, 90 minute or two hour coaches, uh, sessions with coaches in New York, um, either on language or rhythm and notes. Um, I'm a terribly mediocre pianist. So I <laughs> often will put things on my flute. I'll play, I'll play the vocal line on my flute to get a better understanding of where it's going. Um, I often tell young singers the last thing you want to do is sing it. Nothing tires your voice out more than learning rep or guessing notes. Um, so I try really hard to get it in my ear uh, before I put it on my voice. I loved what I heard you saying in the green room. I always get this inside information, so I have an advantage <laughs> when it comes to these interviews. You were talking about isolation and how isolation, that theme, is manifesting in this show. The Voyeur was written in 1953. Well, the play was written before the opera. And then the opera was in the 50s. Written in 53, I believe. 53. And it's, um, this, it's a monodrama of a woman who is uh, on the phone dealing with the end of a relationship. Yes. I loved what you were saying about isolation and how that theme runs throughout this opera and then it, it's something we're all experiencing in one way or another. Can you recall what it was exactly? That you one were? of the things that I think is important about doing this opera at this time is that people will relate to her. I very much dislike when people refer to Elle as crazy. I don't think she's crazy. I think she's lonely and isolated. And that is a very different thing than being crazy. We have all experienced in isolation, lashing out at the people you're closest to. Um, I adore my husband and my children and spending 24 hours a day for six months, largely in the same four walls is hard. I'm in a happy position where I adore my husband and my children. So Elle has made me reconsider what it would mean to be a single person, a lonely person, a person who Despite Elle not being crazy, she probably does have some mental illness in terms of, I imagine, she's dealing with anxiety and depression. Um, how does somebody who's, who's already dealing with those things then have to deal with even more of it when you're put in isolation? And I feel like the isolation of the pandemic has really brought to the surface issues that as a society we have ignored for a very long time and we could afford to ignore and we no longer can. Um, I think that it's, it's been fascinating to me to watch what this country has valued in the last six months. Heaven and earth were moved to make sure the NBA could still play. 
but my children still don't have school. Heaven and earth were moved to make sure the Big Ten college football could play, but 90% of American artists I know are unemployed and at risk of losing their homes. So it's been a very interesting and immediate lesson to be learned in terms of what do we value. Um, and in the pandemic, who we reached out to and what we looked for to fill that void. And again, that we would move heaven and earth for some things and then let it, it became very sad to me. It's very sad that how clear it became to me that arts and education are undervalued in this country. And I would say Utah is one of the few exceptions to that, not just because I'm here and I want to make it look good, um, but because I grew up here. I didn't, I grew up here and I didn't know anyone who didn't have piano lessons or flute lessons or harp. I had friends who had harps. My sister had a cello. My brother got an organ. We had an organ in our home. Um, so you'd walk into our home. There's a grand piano, a cello, a violin, a flute, a couple of flutes, an organ in the basement. Like, that was not weird. When I went to college, most of the friends I made in college were the only kid in their high school who had had serious private music lessons. So I feel like Utah is one of the places where, I mean, I know that was a long tangent from being isolated, mm -hmm. but um, I the isolation has sort of made me reflect a lot on what I wish we valued more as a society. So, Wendy Bryn, Utah Opera is a mid-level regional opera company. That's, that's a good thing. We're really proud of our place in the West and the great things we do here. And we're able to keep performing right now mm -hmm. when a lot of big legendary companies are not. As we record, the Met has just announced it's done mm -hmm. for the entire year, a place where you've spent so much of your formative time. So with the Met closing and other companies in America going into hibernation, we're not. But what we're doing is pretty small in terms of scale. Meanwhile, there's colleagues in Europe moving ahead full bore mm -hmm. with full opera and full-size orchestras, and of course, safety measures are being taken, but they're doing things more on the grand scale. So from your point of view, what's common to those companies in Europe that are making these things happen now while we can't? Honestly, I think the only common thread is government support. In the United States, there isn't, and this is, you know, a discussion or maybe a better word, argument for another time, but the United States doesn't have a systemic government support of the arts. It's, it's a little bit here and there. But when the pandemic happened, you know, friends in Europe, and I had a lot of friends in Europe, were still being paid. In America, my husband is a lawyer. If he goes to the office or not, he gets a paycheck because he's on a payroll. If I don't go to the theater, I don't get paid, period. It doesn't matter how much preparation I've done. It doesn't matter if we're in the middle of a performance and it, they cancel tomorrow's. I don't get paid for tomorrow's. So most American singers panicked, rightly so. And most European singers were like, oh, okay, we can kind of sit back and not sit back and relax, not to downplay the seriousness of the pandemic, but they knew they'd still have a job when the pandemic finished. And I think part of why the European companies felt like they could open was that they had a common security system in place and that there were common safety systems in place. 
What are we going to do to keep artists safe? What are we going to do, you know, to the extent that they could, Glyndebourne moved everything outside for the summer. They had to completely turn their season on its head and reconfigure things, but they went outside. Um, Bayesha Staatsoper has been, you know, removing row or rather not seating people for multiple rows. You seat a cluster, don't seat, seat a cluster. The reason Bayesha Staatsoper can do that is they don't have to sell out their house every performance. The Metropolitan Opera cannot afford to put on a production if they don't sell as many tickets as possible. They have to make some income from ticket sales. Most American companies only make 20 to 30% of their revenue off ticket sales. Everything else is donations. But without that 20 or 30%, they're, they're still going to go under. Um, whereas I think the difference is the European houses, they can socially distance their audience. They can sell less than half the house and still make it worth it. In America, you can't do that. Well, I hope I have an insight into this next lighter question. We like to ask all of our operatic guests this particular question. What subject, real or fictional, would you like to see made into an opera and why? <laughs> I have a few. I am a big fan of female spies. Yes, I got it. <laughs> I am a huge fan of espionage. I think it's so cool. Um, <laughs> in another life, I think I would have very much liked to have been a spy. Um, I particularly love the story of a woman named Nancy Wake, and I'm dying for an opera to be made about her. Her story. Uh, Vera Atkins also. Vera Atkins was a really incredible spy. Both of these are were spies during World War II. But Nancy Wake for me is just the gutsiest woman I've ever read about. And her entire life was made up of these choices that just, she always took the riskier, more interesting option. Always, always, always. From the time she was 14 years old and ran away and changed her name. She took the riskier option that would lead to a more interesting life. And so I would love to see an opera about her. Um, Is she a dramatic soprano by chance? She's very much a dramatic soprano. <laughs> okay. And she... Do you have any casting ideas for that yes, role? Okay. <laughs> yes. Yes. I should um, say, Wendy Brynn, it, it occurs wrong. to me that the uh, the statement, I, in another life, might have been a spy, is exactly what a spy would say. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's true. What? Nothing. <laughs> no, well, I'd make a fantastic spy. Who would guess? I love it. <laughs> it's a great idea. And I, I think somebody, we've had a, several composers on the show, and every time somebody comes up with a great idea, we hope they're listening. So yes, exactly. Take so they can start writing the libretto. I actually do have, um, there was one other historical figure, but it came true. I got the opera written um, between John and Abigail Adams. A friend of mine, a brilliant composer named Patricia Leonard, wrote a piece for myself and a wonderful, wonderful baritone who has passed away, Chuck Taylor. I think Chuck actually worked in Utah a couple of times. Mm -hmm. um, Chuck Taylor and I, she, she spent two years pulling letters, researching John and Abigail Adams within an inch of their lives and wrote this gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous opera. It's just two people and a giant orchestra. It's, it's huge. It's a, it's a big orchestration, but it's, it's the letters between John and Abigail and in the opera, they're, they're never together. Um, and most of their life they weren't, but it's, it was really fun to be able to get my dream role, Abigail Adams written for me. Yeah. <laughs> and now my next dream role, if anyone's listening, please research Nancy Wake and let me know what you think. <laughs> I think you're going to get it done. It's clear you, 
it's clear you see things through. That's great. Um, the other question that we always ask guests on the show, because of the of our name, the Ghost Light Podcast, we we talk to people who are in a lot of theaters, which are famously mm -hmm. haunted places. So, Wendy Brin, have you? Ever seen a ghost? Any paranormal experiences that you can share with us today? I haven't, and I'm so disappointed. I would love to. <laughs> I would love to, especially in the theater. Like, I love the ghost light. That's one of my favorite moments. It, we don't often actually get to see it because it's usually the stagehands. The stagehands work harder. The crew works harder than anyone else in the theater. Right. They're there before any of the singers, and they're, they're long after any of the singers. So it's a rare thing for me get, to even get to see the ghost light. But when I do, I just think it's beautiful. I love I love a good ghost light. And I wish I'd seen a ghost. It is really beautiful. And when you see one, if you're lucky enough, as you say, to see one in place for the reasons that it's supposed mm -hmm. to be there, it does look like a place that probably ought to be haunted. It's yeah, very forlorn. But a happy and, yeah. You know, like I would love I would love to see a ghost in a theater because what stories they would tell, you know? Well, you'll be in a haunted theater soon <laughs> enough. And you will indeed. Let us Come back, check back with you us and let us haunted. know that if you see our Capitol Theater resident ghost. There you have a resident ghost? I'm so excited. We do. So, I mean, maybe you'll have a different story when we have you back. And Got it. Speaking of having you back, I can't wait till someday in the future when you can come back and do Senta as Let's planned. Do it. I, it would be just amazing to hear you do that role. Utah needs to hear some Wagner. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> I. I, on behalf of Carol and I, thank you so much for being part of this conversation today. It's been really wonderful. It's been just great to have you on the Ghost Light Podcast. Thanks for having me. Be sure and to visit utahsymphony.org and utahopera.org for information about upcoming performances. If you haven't yet, we would so much appreciate if you would subscribe, rate, and review the show wherever you get your podcasts. This helps us to get new listeners. Until next time, I'm Carol Anderson. And I'm Jeff Counts. Thanks for listening. The Ghostlight Podcast is produced and edited by Robert Bedont. The Utah Symphony Utah Opera season sponsor is the George S. and Dolores Dore Eccles Foundation. <laughs>